It is the chill zone. And um, just 27 minutes before nine. And that was Times Are Changing from Bob Dylan, one of my all-time favorite artists. But this is not my choice. This is my guest's choice. That's Peter Sullivan, a veteran uh, journalist. And um, he edited The Star, South Africa's premier daily newspaper from 1993 to 2000. Though the country's transition to democracy in 2001, he was appointed group editor-in-chief, independent newspapers, uh, 16 South African uh, titles, a position he held until 2010. Now, he has worked so much. I mean, he has interviewed so many presidents. And, of course, after teaching in the Army, he joined Rand Daily Mail as a cadet reporter. And before becoming the country's leading political analyst in Parliament... In the 80s, he interviewed domestic presidents and prime ministers. I'm talking from John Foster, P.W. Porter, F.W. de Klerk in Africa, Zambia's presidents, Chiluba, Kaunda, and of course abroad, uh, President Ronald Reagan, Prime Minister Thatcher. These are just a few, just to give you a bit of insight as to how much of a legend journalist he is. And has many. he's done so many interviews and, I mean, moderated in Davos for World Economic Forum for a dozen years, chairman of BirdLife South Africa from 2008 2012, qualified national guide, worked for the United Nations in Beijing, UNDP in Kenya, UNEP in Denmark, spent seven months in Mogadishu, Somalia, in 2016 as chief strategist for AU and UN support in war against um, um, Al-Shabaab, he is currently chairman of uh, Landelani, a top recruitment leadership and assessment company which occupies a special space as it is owned entirely by people who are black or female. To our guest, Peter, good evening and a warm welcome to the Chill Zone on SAFM. <laughs> good evening. It's wonderful. It's lovely to hear what you have to say about me, but I must tell you that I've stopped being chairman of Landelani about four years ago, so I'm not quite sure where that was. Oh, but no. I should have I should have corrected it somewhere. I'm sure yes. you got it from somewhere where but it, I should have corrected it. But it doesn't matter now. Look, we no. <laughs> we we know you've done so you know, you've done so much in you know, in the journalistic world of ours. You have spoken, you have interviewed, you have edited, you you've done so much. And I just want to, to, to ask, first and foremost, you chose Bob Dylan. Times are changing. Why? I think the times for journalists are always changing. And certainly during my time, I mean, one of the reasons I became a journalist was I kind of wanted to tell the truth about apartheid at the time. And that was the big change that happened is that uh, to some extent, I sort of like to say we got rid of apartheid, meaning the people of South Africa. And, uh, and I mean, that was a big change. But the, but times continue to change. I mean, if you look at independent newspapers now, compared to where they were then, it's an enormous change. If you look at um, the SABC now, it's changed a lot. If I look at journalists now, they are so much more competent than I was. I was able to write a story. I'm still pretty good at writing a story on a computer. In the beginning, you used to do it on typewriters. But I'm not very good at social media and videos and all the kind of things that modern journalists take for granted, that you will be able to do these things. I mean, and, and now we have ChatGPT. So 
the times change all the time. I know that disruption, even for me, trust me, it's a bit of a challenge. And I sit and I question a whole lot of things to say, would I prefer to be back then or do I prefer to be now? Back then you had to use a, your brain quite a lot. Lately, well, you just type a word and before you even finish typing a word, it pops up right. properly spelt <laughs> and, you know, yeah. copy and paste and you get work done. Luckily, you don't have to take that choice. There is no way that you can choose to go back then. Back then is gone. Unfortunately, um, unfortunately. Now, let's talk about your career. What What would you say were your highlights? What really made Peter Sullivan the happiest journalist? You know, I think one of the one of the greatest highlights for me was when I was a brand new cadet reporter on the Rand Daily Mail. They sent me off to Velcom, where at the time there was a huge faction fight in the mine between the Khosas and the uh, um, the Shangans, I think. And uh, and they said, just go and collect the pictures, because I was just a junior, very junior reporter. And I went there. And when I got there, the photographer said he didn't have decent pictures yet. So he said to me, just hang around for a couple of hours and I'll get a good picture of these guys fighting. So instead of doing that, I went and I spoke to the mine workers themselves and said, why are you guys fighting? You know, and then I, I drove back with these pictures and I sat down and I wrote this very long story. <laughs> and I handed it to the news editor who said to me, no, 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 you were just sent to go and get pictures. And we, you weren't there to go and write anything. We've got proper decent journalists writing, you know, and he could see I was very disappointed. He said, all right, I'll give it to one of these journalists. Maybe they'll use a paragraph or two. And the next morning, I caught the bus from Parktown into the Randall Mail, and the guy in front of me opened up the paper, and in the middle of the Randall Mail, there was the story about the mine workers, and there was a byline, my first ever byline by Peter Sullivan. I mean, I could feel the hairs go on the back of my neck go up. And I wanted to tap him on the shoulder and say to him, that's my story. I wrote that. So, I mean, that kind of excitement, I think, is what makes journalists continue doing what they're doing, is when you see your version, your view conveyed to thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. So that was a great highlight for me. Not the, not the really big things like meeting Reagan and meeting Thatcher. Those are great and very enjoyable and part of what you do, but those are not the real, real highlights. I mean, the real highlights are when, for instance, the newspaper covered uh, Lady Di's death very well and we covered the, the disaster at Ellis Park. And when you produce a paper that you're really proud of and you're proud of the front page, you're proud of all the reporters that have come up and done their thing and the photographers that have provided fantastic pictures the star used to have the best photographic team in the world i mean i traveled to 100 newspapers i never ever found a photographic team as good as the one that was at the star and south africa was extraordinarily lucky to have a very good newspaper at the time through the transition through democracy we really did have good newspapers um, I, I can't say that uh, They've improved since then, unfortunately. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we were, I mean, at, at the time, the papers did a pretty good job. 
I know the star. You, I mean, you would find the star everywhere you go. And well, I, I was a younger journalist then, and each time when you wanted to 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 check your intellect, you had to read the star as often as possible because the stories were credible, and you knew you were spot on just by reading the star. You knew your story was on point. It wasn't a matter of your question, you know. Yeah. The ethics. I mean. The integrity was there. The honesty was there. Everything was very well checked. I had 242 journalists. I mean, so when I took over as editor, I sort of made a pact with management that I would give, get one journalist for every thousand copies that we sold. And so we were selling about 250,000 and they gave me 242 journalists and I sort of, that was written into my contract. But if I look at the current editor of the star, I think has got about 24. Wow. So, you know, you can't compare what the star is now to what it was then, because we were a big organization with a lot of journalists. We were able to cover all the stories. The paper itself was thick. When I first joined the star and uh, Harvey, I mean, we were producing newspapers of 250 pages, 200 pages. Just the classified section was 40 pages. Now, of course, there is no classified section. Yeah, It's now all on Facebook, I suppose. I'm not quite sure where On it is. On social media. So social media. I maybe whilst we're still on on you know how media has transformed from back then to now, what's your perspective or what's your take in terms of merit of what you find? I I think young people today or or generally people today have so much choice in what they read. In those days, you got the star and you read what we had decided you would read. So, I mean, people used to say to me, you only put stuff in your newspaper that you want to put there. I said, what else can I do? I can only put stuff that I want to put there. And and that was curated and you were given some sport and some finance and some art and some news from around the world and some news from within South Africa and some news from Johannesburg. And that was your daily diet. Now, people have to choose themselves what to read. But now, they have a choice of reading the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Pravda or the Spanish newspapers or the South American newspapers. Or, I mean, on Google, they can read Reuters. They can read anything they want. Mm. Unfortunately, they have to choose themselves. It's a lot more difficult now. I mean, they, they can go to Media24, they can go to IOL, and go to the local ones and they can look at those and those news that's curated a bit as is um daily maverick which is quite good they don't quite get a set meal as it were now it's more a la carte yeah <laughs> you choose yourself what you want to read and unfortunately people read the kind of things that they believe in so if you think hamas is doing good job you will read stuff that says hamas is doing a good job if you think Israel is doing a good job, you'll read stuff that says Israel is doing a good job. Yeah. If yeah. you think Cyril is doing a wonderful job, you'll read something that says Cyril is doing a wonderful job, and you'll think, no, that's what I like. People read, they read things that reinforce themselves. So I think people are becoming more and more polarized because they're not reading the opposite view. Mm. And coming back to you, um, um, Peter, you had interactions with uh, our former late president, um, Mandela. 
uh, your your first interaction, your first meeting, what was that like? Well, my first meeting was when he came off the island and I met him in, uh, well, not off the island, when he came, sort of when everybody met him in Cape Town, when he came out of jail. And I introduced myself and said, Peter Sullivan from the Star, and he said, yes, I've read your column. Uh, I said, you know, thank you very much. I mean, I was very much in awe. And then six months later, we didn't really, that's all I did. Six months later, I was at a, the British Ambassador, British High Commissioner's garden party, and he was there, and there was a line of people to shake his hand. And when I got to him, I said, uh, Peter Sullivan from the Star. And he said, uh, yes, uh, we met in the Cape Town. You have forgotten me. My name is Nelson Mandela, he said. <laughs> he had a wonderful sense of humor, the old man. And uh, and from then on, we had a lot of interactions. I went to his house for breakfast. I went there for lunch. Uh, he met my children. My my youngest daughter, Julia, gave him a kiss on top of his head where she was walking around his room. And he said, what was that for? And she said, you looked cross. And I thought you needed a kiss. I think she was seven at the time. And then when he would see me in public, he would shout across the room, Peter, I am cross. Where is Julia? I need a kiss. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. No, he was. He was. And I don't know whether we'll ever have another like him. Chances are not in this lifetime, maybe in the next lifetime. Hopefully we'll all be there at some point. So yeah. let's identifying out of the presidents and your interactions with these world leaders. Apart from Nelson Mandela, anybody else yeah. who stood out for you? I think Bill Clinton, um, Bill Clinton, Nelson Mandela, and oddly enough, my boss, uh, Tony O'Reilly. So Tony O'Reilly was um, this Irishman who was uh, owned all the newspapers. And the three of them had something in common in that when they talked to you, you felt you were the only person in the room and that what you were saying was really important. And all three of them just had this ability. So they would, when Mandela talked to you, you thought what you were saying was the most important thing. And the same with Tony O'Reilly and the same with Bill Clinton. The others, uh, I'd never met anybody who was like those three in being able to make you feel very important. Mm. Now, I see that you, you, you're currently doing your master's. Correct me if I'm wrong or you're done. No, no. Well, uh, it's a good question, actually. They, uh, they told me that the marking would be done, funny enough, yesterday on the 12th but that it still has to go to be reviewed, which will take four or five days, and then it'll be done. So I handed in my thesis, although they call it a research project for your master's, in, um, in July. But WITS works slowly, not like newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> Academia, I have discovered, takes a long time to decide things. So I'm not sure whether I've passed or not, but I have certainly handed in my thesis. I'm going, we're going to take just a small break. And when we get back, I want to ask you this question. Why would you do it now, Peter? Why would you do it now? But hold on to that thought. When we get back, we continue with our conversation. The Chill Zone with Bertha Charuma.
I'm talking to Peter Sullivan, a veteran journalist, writes for Forbes, uh, columns for MoneyWeb, various others. And, of course, he was born in Bloemfontein and uh, 10th generation South African, educated at uh, Gray College and, of course, currently completed. Well, he says he's waiting for the results for his master's in ethics at Witz Philosophy Department. I asked a question, Peter, why now? You're putting pressure on us, the younger generation, to say, you know, learning never stops. Well, it doesn't. But I mean, the the easy answer to that is that uh, when COVID arrived, my partner Melanie and I were locked up in our flat together and I needed to do something. And uh, I had always, when I did philosophy when I was younger, I'd always wanted to do a bit more of ethics. And when you become a newspaper editor, you are confronted with ethical decisions virtually every day. Um, whether to run a story, whether to run this part of a story, whether to trust this journalist, whether to trust that source, whether you should splash the story or just use it down on page 24. And these ethical decisions come up all the time. And I thought I'd like to find out what other people have got to say about taking those ethical decisions. And, And so I did ethics, and it was just the most wonderful two years at Wits of learning all about ethics by by different philosophers Mm, and modern philosophers. You know, you really do put uh, pressure because I remember when I went back to school, well, I I was a bit of a senior and I asked myself, this money that I'm spending, I could buy a townhouse. But I suppose (laughs) (laughs) rewinding, I think it was a wise thing because, you know, with, with information, no one can ever take that away from you. Um, I've got a I've got a, a WhatsApp that has come through. I've got somebody says, good evening, Bertha and the brilliant team. Thank you for calling us brilliant. Um, your guest is a veteran journalist. His CV is longer than my arm. He reminds me of Jeff Nyarota in Zimbabwe. OK, that's interesting. Let's take a, a voice note. Let's hear what they have, they're saying. Hi to the SAFM team. And it's a honor, honor uh, to say to Peter O'Sullivan, Hi to Peter O'Sullivan. It's Kali. It's Kali. I'm one of your ardent readers. I was, but uh, no more because the eye now is, you know, don't permit. Um, yeah, man, you're great, man. You know, thank you for hosting him. You know what I mean? Thank you. Thank you. It was so <laughs> thank nice you very hearing much, his That's voice. very nice of you to say that. Yes. I mean, what can we do? You you are the foundation of, of journalism. And I just wanted to find out from you, what sort of advice would you give to young upcoming journalists? I think the, the best advice I could give was to say they should keep a journal. So I was like, uh, you know, I used to regale my, my dentist when he took all the stuff out of my mouth and telling me about the people I'd met and where I'd been because he and I had been neighbors at the university and the residence he'd been in the room next door to me and I, every time I went to see him I used to tell him stories and he said to me you really should keep a journal and that was in 1992 and so I started keeping a journal then and I really wished I'd started in 1973 instead and kept a journal of everything that I've done because it just reminds you when you read it yourself of what you've done and there's so many stories that I've forgotten that I did but from 1992, at least I've got a bit of a record of the things that I've done and the people that I've seen and where I've been. And the other thing is you enjoy writing it so much. Most of us journalists love writing. And you're writing about yourself and what you've done and your thoughts 
And then when you read it like I do now, 20 years, 30 years later, it's really, it's interesting to you. I'm not sure that my children will find it as interesting, but you find that yourself interesting and maybe you want to write a book sometime and then at least you've got a record of what you've done. So I would say to you, Bertha, start tomorrow. Write down, if you can, once a week or every day, a little bit about what you've done and what impressed you and what you liked and what movie you saw and which book you've read and who you met and all of those things. They will, in 30 years' time, they will be interesting to you to go back to read them. And I would say to journalists, keep a journal because there are lots of things in that journal that you will go back to look at and people that you want to contact again, and it will help your writing and it will help your thoughts. But I also want to say, Bertha, that one of the reasons we're having this conversation is because it's Press Freedom Day and we haven't spoken about that next week. Oh, yes. I, I was about to just touch on that. I mean, you know, and also I was looking at, uh, you know, the South African National Editors Forum uh, to, to, to garner critical support in defending, of course, uh, the press freedom in, in South Africa. Can you just give, give me a little bit more in that regard? Yeah, this is the 27th year of the South African National Editors Forum. I was a founder member of it. It used to be called the Conference of Editors, but in those days they were all white editors. And so then we changed it to be more inclusive and to be the conference of editors 27 years ago. And, you know, journalists everywhere are intimidated, they're harassed, they're targeted, there's censorship. And on Black Wednesday, as it was called, the 19th of October in 1977, Jimmy Kruger outlawed 18 organizations, if I remember correctly, including the Union of Black Journalists and three newspapers. The world was one of them. I must tell you, we had the most wonderful cartoon of this guy sitting on Mars and reading the star and saying to his friend on Mars, how's that for Krach Dardichet? Jimmy Kruger has banned the world. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it wasn't funny at all. At the time, it was really uh, tough stuff. Uh, Percy Corbaza and Agri Cluster were uh, imprisoned. Donald Woods was put under house arrest. Uh, and the whole of the media was sort of shut down. And there was a lot of censorship everywhere. And we tried our best to avoid that censorship. We, in fact, quite enjoyed getting around it at times. But we commemorate that now because journalists continue to be under threat around the world, everywhere, and certainly in South Africa, as we've seen with the Corin Morn case and with uh, various other things that have happened. So there is a, so it's the 19th, so this Wednesday, I think next week, but on Friday, there's a big dinner, the Black Wednesday dinner, and that is used to raise money for the, um, the defense of journalists, essentially. Mm. And uh, I would advise everybody who can to come to it or to sponsor a table or to do what they can. It's a, it fundraises for the Media Defense Fund. And I have a number that anybody can phone. And I have Bridget's uh, email address, which is Bridget, which is spelled, I think, B-R-I-T-G-E-T, at thebugfactor.co.za. You can get hold of her. And her phone number is 083-263-6991 for people who want to learn more about it, want to sponsor something, want to help journalism in this country.
And just before I let you go, um, I see that you're currently guiding political tours of South Africa uh, for poli- you. Well, basically, yeah, you are in the political tours. Why? Um, you know, the New York Times, a guy from the New York Times phoned one day and said to me, I've got these high level people and they're coming and they don't want to go and see the sites of Johannesburg or uh, Cape Town. Anyway, they want to meet the important people. So you're supposed to be connected to the important people. Bielta just named me one of the most connected people in the country. And would you conduct a political tour for them? And so I designed a tour, and that was about 10 years ago. We went to Nkanda first to see what we'd spent our money on. And then over the Drakensburg, went to the went down a mine, met Helen Zilla at the time, met Tabo and Becky. And uh, since then, we've done it sort of two or three times a year. People who want to come to South Africa, they're very interested in the politics. They want to meet all the political players. They're not really interested in, in going to see the sites. Um, they're usually quite high-level people. And I really enjoy doing it. And then because of that, I became a national guide. I thought I'd better get some kind of qualification. Well, Peter, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. I could just talk to you. To, I could just talk to you for another hour or so and <laughs> so that I can really get um all the insights and all the information that I just want to squeeze out of you but unfortunately at some point you know it's radio it has time yeah. limits but thank you so much for joining us and having yeah, it's this great talking to you as well and uh, you have a great program so thank you so congratulations. much thank you so You're much right. Peter Sullivan a veteran journalist very passionate drive for the betterment of a South African uh, newspaper industry. And to all the young journalists, I think credibility, credibility, credibility is so important. I, I know we have a tendency of just, you know, we purge information without really uh, doing proper research and giving good information that is true and factual.